0: Bite the bullet, baby! Bite the bullet! Boston Twin Peaks, a podcast for both first-time and veteran viewers of Twin Peaks, the mystery series that ran for two seasons in the early 90s on ABC, followed by a feature film and, 25 years later, a limited series on Showtime. If you're listening to this as a public episode, I avoid spoilers for upcoming episodes, which can be found in a separate feed, link in the show notes. But I do include a section called Shape of the Show, where I discuss the overall context or structure of the series, and sometimes fan speculation from first-time viewers, without giving away any details of the plot. If your new listener who has just discovered this episode and wants to know more about the podcast, check out episode 0, show format. The season finale is the 8th episode of the first season, and is referred to as such on Netflix, but almostly refer to it as episode 7, following the DVD and Blu-ray designations. During its German broadcast, the episode was dubbed The Last Evening, and although unofficial, this episode title is used on many streaming services and associated media. On screen, Leo is shot, Jacques is strangled, The Mill burns, and Shelley, Pete, and Catherine appear to be caught inside. Nadine overdoses on sleeping pills. Lucy tells Andy she's pregnant. Jacoby is knocked out by a mystery man. James is framed by Bobby. Audrey's first customer at one Eye Jacks turns out to be her father, and Cooper gets shot. Now, at the time that I'm releasing this publicly... Uh, as you know, there's been a month off between the last episode and this, so just to update you quickly on what I've been up to on my other podcasts, I was a guest recently on Twin Peaks Unwrapped for uh, Ronnie Rocket, which was a David Lynch screenplay that was never produced, so the hosts wanted me and John Thorne and some others to come on and talk about that, and they have people reenacting scenes from it, so that's a lot of fun. It's called a very Ronnie Rocket Christmas special, so timely for this week. I also released a couple more Twin Peaks Conversations uh, podcasts where I put part of it on YouTube and then the larger part on my Patreon for $5 a month patrons. Uh, The most recent one was with Scott Ryan, who wrote a book on Firewalking that's going to be coming out next year, and he wants people to pre-order a color edition. So you can check that out and definitely order his book. I was able to read part of it, and it's uh, fantastic. I also, for my Twin Peaks Cinema uh, podcast in December, covered the film Sunset Boulevard, talking about its connections to Twin Peaks, starting with the names of uh, certain characters that are taken from there and then going much deeper into that story of the dark side of Hollywood and how it influenced uh, Lynch's work in, in Twin Peaks in particular, but obviously also in some of his other films. And then for my main Lost in the Movies podcast, in December I covered a double feature of The Devil Rides Out and Brawl and Cell Block 99, Two sort of semi-exploitation films, I guess you could say. A horror film from the 60s and a action thriller from uh, the 2010s. And then uh, for my November episode of Twin Peaks Conversations, I talked to the hosts of the Peaks Chats podcast, who had me on uh, to discuss an important episode on their show back in September. So I had them on to this, again, split over YouTube and Patreon, and we talked about their podcast, which has just reached Season 3. On my uh, Patreon, for a dollar a month patrons, I put out a couple monthly episodes that have been delayed. One for October, one for November. And on these, I discuss various characters, locations, and storylines of Twin Peaks. These will be listed in the Illustrated Companion. Um, I'll go a little lightly on them here, because some of them haven't come up yet in the show, trying to stay spoiler-free. But for the uh, main Twin Peaks cinema sections of that, I covered the film uh, for the November one. I covered Drugstore Cowboy and connected it to Twin Peaks, the 1989 Gus Van Zandt film. And then for the uh, October podcast, Patreon podcast, I covered another uh, 1989 film, Field of Dreams, and connected that to Twin Peaks. And then I also posted on Patreon just an update, sort of like I did on this feed, talking about how I was delaying Lost in Twin Peaks, be coming back to it later, pausing, maybe skipping ahead at a certain point. Uh, we'll discuss that more at the, uh, you know, as as this week ends, and I sort of look forward to what comes next. But for now, we're focusing on season one finale all week, usual schedule, Saturday through Friday, and then also one last podcast. Uh, probably the biggest of all of these, um, in terms of length, and maybe uh, well, I guess the Patriot, the Twin Peaks conversations are pretty long, but split over two. This one is one long 50-minute podcast on my Twin Peaks Cinema feed, covering the film Vertigo, the great Alfred Hitchcock thriller, and its connections to Twin Peaks. Again, starting with a name of characters, but going much, much deeper. This may be one of the most deeply connected. Uh, films to Twin Peaks that there is. It's a favorite of David Lynch in particular so that was a lot of fun to discuss and dig into. Now our big questions come to the fore. What is Twin Peaks? Who is Agent Cooper? And who is Laura Palmer? We've now finished our first season of the show. Where do all these questions stand? What is Twin Peaks? Weirdly the Twin Peaks of the finale mirrors the Twin Peaks of the pilot. Both are towns in ways that the community depicted in other episodes usually isn't. Think of how we return to the hospital and the sawmill, very functional locations that we haven't visited since the pilot or closely thereafter. The episode's one new location, a water processing plant, also fits this role. And so, from a Neverland crafted on a Hollywood soundstage, Twin Peaks is now back to being an ordinary place in the real world. Even the episode's colorful exceptions wear their exceptionality on their sleeve, Jacoby's office is loudly anachronistic with its tropical themes, and One-Eyed Jax was mostly shot in a real L.A. location rather than constructed wholesale with movie magic. There's a real feeling that the events transpiring on screen could take place just about anywhere. Nothing roots them in a quiet village in the Pacific Northwest. But the pilot and the finale are worldly in very different fashion. The pilot's down-to-earth qualities are found in its quiet moments and authentic locations, while the finale's noisiness and archetypal cop show soap opera scenarios are what tie it to the outside world. In other words, the pilot's Twin Peaks feels different because of its rooted specificity, whereas the finale's Twin Peaks feels different because of its broad generality. Who is Agent Cooper? This is now the second time that Frost has authored a Cooper portrait as a solo artist, and what we see is surprisingly different from episode 5. There, Frost emphasized Coop's grouchiness as the Icelanders kept him awake and his ability to be overwhelmed and confused by the log lady in her cabin and Audrey in his bed. He was still a remarkable detective when confronted with Flesh World, Jock's Heating Bill, or the contents of a windy cabin. One might even say he only blossomed when able to dive into the investigative process, but he was far from the zany dream weaver of episode two. The Cooper in episode seven is far from Lynch's vision as well, but this time, it's because of his smooth confidence, lending him a sophisticated air. The man in the sharp tux who traps Jacques Renault is not childlike. He's a stone-cold pro, able to sharpen and wield his charisma as a deadly weapon, a consummate player of much more than cards. If Frost's two versions of Cooper fit together, it's because they are connected by their worldliness, and, ultimately, even here, their very human vulnerability, given the final shots. Pun intended. Who is Laura Palmer? If there's an episode where Who Killed Laura Palmer takes over almost completely from who was Laura Palmer, this is it. At times, Laura and the consequent investigation into her murder seem almost secondary to the webs she's embedded in. She's a useful tool to go after a drug dealer, a peephole into a wealthy magnate's dark secrets, an excuse to set up a personal enemy, and even an incidental complication in a more high-stakes murder case. Frost is on record, at the time this episode was airing as well as others, describing Laura as a path into this world, whose individual importance may have been overstated. He was clearly worried that the long-term prospects of the series would be drowned in the immediacy of this big question. Yet even here, the enigma of Laura's powerful presence saturates many scenes, and we never drift completely, or even very far at all, into the territory of, say, True Detective's Dora Lang whom the bigger-than-life antihero dismisses as just chum in the water, man. If the voice on the tape suggests a more one-dimensionally restless party girl than in episode one, Frost even re-recorded that version for this episode, if Jacques' sordid anecdotes puncture the impermeability of Laura's otherworldliness, she still remains the unescapable center of Twin Peaks. And clearly, a center that isn't about to vanish anytime soon. The feel of the episode is, apparently paradoxically, but actually quite logically, both more normal than usual and highly abnormal. That's because when a show as unconventional as Twin Peaks goes in more common, melodramatic, or action-oriented directions, what's normal for TV as abnormal for Twin Peaks. Everything feels a little heightened and disorienting, as if the raw material of Twin Peaks, the familiar faces of the characters, the architecture of the surrounding narrative, the surfaces of the sets they inhabit, have been transferred into a new context. In a way, this Surrealism of the Frost episode reminds us of the work of David Lynch. Bear with me here. In Lynch's later films, stories and characters often warp beyond recognition. The people may physically look the same, but they'll go by different names and have different dramatic personalities. Martha Nockamson compares this to the quantum concepts of entanglement and superposition. This is a much more subtle version of that, obviously, but we can't shake the sensation that we are dreaming up a skewed version of the universe we're already familiar with. Arguably, then, Frost crafted one of the most inadvertently Lynchian episodes of the show, One almost wonders if Lynch watched this episode, marveled at how far his own co-creation had traveled just by virtue of introducing other collaborators into the equation, and went on to create solo works that reflect this warping, splintering process, but through authorial intent rather than some inadvertent creative fallout. Did the season one finale give birth in some indirect manner to Mulholland Drive? As with the previous episode, which pushed toward this outcome while retaining much more of the connection to the essence of Peaks, there will be no uncanny section this week but it might be said that this lack of uncanniness is in fact the most uncanny thing about episode 7. For the first time, we can discuss a single writer and director in one category. Mark Frost wrote the teleplay for the concluding episode of Twin Peaks, and he also directed it himself. The writing was nothing new. Practically since he was old enough to hoist himself in front of a typewriter, Frost had been a scribe by nature, penning stories, plays, and eventually TV episodes and films we discussed that work as well as Frost's background back when i covered the pilot which he co-wrote with lynch but what about frost's history as a director it had always been my understanding for the decade that i've discussed and researched twin peaks including much my recent dive into frost's work in particular that episode 7 marked his debut in the director's chair taking full control of his baby at least for this moment and honing his skills for the feature film he hoped to helm soon just a few minutes into preparing this podcast however I discovered my error. Frost's screen directorial debut was in fact an episode of Hill Street Blues during the season in which he served as executive story editor. This shock would have arrived pretty soon regardless because coincidentally, I'm just like three or four episodes shy of that episode in my years-long watch-through of Hill Street Blues. As such, I thought I should pause this preparation, jump a little bit ahead to watch that episode, and return after taking an hour to reflect on it to see if I can draw any comparisons. So, after watching the episode, few visual comparisons come to mind. While Twin Peaks established a certain template with its pilot, it tends to allow plenty of room for directors to experiment and push different aesthetic emphasis within this boundaries. Uh, Hill Street Blues, though, has a much more binding house style. And within that, as well as the fact that this was Frost's first shot at a practical mechanics of filmmaking, aside possibly from any unlisted short film projects or the like, it's hard to detect any very strong variation in his work, which may in itself be a compliment. A few visual elements are noticeable here and there, a fondness for capturing exchanges in two shots rather than shot-reverse-shot where possible, but for the most part what stands out is Frost's sensitivity for the pacing and pathos of performance. This is especially true between two characters who are alone together, resolving or expressing their tensions in dialogue, with one of them doing much of the heavy lifting. Frost Hill Street Blues episode, Washington Deceased, had quite a few dramatic two-handers that fit this description, probably at least half a dozen, just as Episode 7 does. More than usual, I think, with Jacques and Cooper, Catherine and Pete, Andy and Lucy, Hank and Norma, and Hank and Josie. And although Frost did not write the Hill Street Blues episode... I was struck by a handful of narrative similarities. For example, a wounded lover who can only see their abusive behavior in self-pitying terms, and even a couple detectives talking to an obnoxious and overweight character who lies in a hospital bed thanks to them. There's also a shocking shooting, although on Hill Street Blues it turns out to be a prank. Hey, maybe that was Albert at the door for Cooper and he just has a sick and poorly timed sense of humor. The episode ends with someone blowing out three candles instead of having three bullets blasted into him. With the opportunity to direct for Twin Peaks, a show that had a freer vision and which he himself controlled, you can see Frost seizing opportunities to play with the camera and editing, including his creative opening shot, the framing of Hank with antlers, the extreme close-up of Jacques's mouth as he shares his salacious story, and quite a few dramatic dissolves, the most memorable being the optical zoom into Jacoby's eye matching the roulette wheel. On the other side of the ledger, Twin Peaks may bring something new to Frost, but he also brings something new to Twin Peaks. The pace is much quicker. There are even straight-up action sequences, and unusually for the series, Frost sometimes employs direct overhead shots, including that aforementioned roulette wheel, as well as the cruiser circling around Jacques like sharks approaching their prey, to complete the fishy analogies that Harry and Hawk employ leading up to this moment. The episode dips into both artsy flourishes and blunt functionality, with the eagerness of a relatively new director savoring every opportunity to experiment, but also relishing the simple task of converting the words on the page into building blocks of film grammar. This is also Frost's second solo teleplay, and while it overlaps with Episode 5's clean narrative drive and fondness for dramatic set pieces, this feels distinct in several notable ways. Whereas that episode tended to bring characters and situations together, Episode 7 shifts towards siloing all the storylines, racing around town to keep up with each of them, even when a character like Hank is present in many. Episode 5 also made room for the ethereal in Twin Peaks, whereas this finale is 100% absorbed in down-to-earth crime schemes and personal betrayals. And Cooper is quite interestingly a different figure here, fleshing out Frost's conception of the character, although we'll save the details of that discussion for later. With authorship credit on five of the eight episodes this season, and the most consistently hands-on role of anyone in guiding the overall storyline through all episodes, Frost deserves a lot of the credit for cultivating the unique flavor of season one. So it's intriguing that Unfiltered Frost feels at times like quite a different creature than every other episode. For the production contest, uh, context of this episode, it was the final episode to go into production in 1989. Lynch had finally shot his own belated entry, allowing the two co-creators to express their distinct individual visions, back-to-back on the Van Nuys stage. It was close to Christmas now, and as Frost recalls, I remember all of us having so much fun. We were working really hard, and it was at the end of the shoot, and everyone was really gassed, but we found a finishing kick where we can sort of smell the barn, and everyone rallied and gave us the best energy for that final push. It was really great. David Lynch, who had spent much of the first season production distracted by Wild at Heart, made it to the editing room to view the finale with Frost, and according to editor Paul Trejo, his only comment was Twin Peaks was awfully busy that night, wasn't it? That's it for this episode. As I said, we will continue with the daily schedule through the end of season one finale next Friday. At that point, we'll talk about what's next. I have some ideas, um, different possibilities for the new year 2022, but there will be at least a couple months off after that. So before our final message, just want to say uh, please. Uh, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, and also consider becoming a patron on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. Uh, while you're waiting for the next episode, you can jump on there, and actually, I mean, you can race ahead if you want. Uh, I released the episodes in larger format over the past three years, so these public episodes are really sort of slicing up and representing that material. So you can even continue right on with the series if the, if that's how you want to approach it. And, of course, for $5 a month, those Twin Peaks conversations. So, uh, that's it for today. And, uh, of course, Merry Christmas to all of those listening on December 25th when this is coming out. Ho, ho, ho! Season's greetings from Agent Cooper and the gang and all those Douglas furs up here in Twin Peaks.